This morning, I am uh, privileged to read from our scripture, but before I do that, I want to take a minute to introduce our preacher this morning. Uh, Luke Fangman will be bringing God's word, kicking off our Advent season. Um, Luke and Jenna have been uh, with us for probably a year now, year-ish, and have been members since the summer, and we are uh, really excited that God has answered our prayers, and here very soon, we are going to be sending them off to Japan um, uh, to be missionaries, uh, working with a church plant there. And so um, if all goes as it should, which we ask you to continue to pray that it would, uh, next Sunday will actually be their last Sunday here um, before they leave. And so um, before I introduce, uh, before I bring Luke up, um, I did want to just tell you that if you're here next Sunday, uh, we will be having a reception. We'll be ending our gathering by praying over them, uh, laying some hands and, and praying as we send them out. Then we'll have cake and a, a reception. Uh, Brandon Clark, when he did announcements, he mentioned to you that part of our mission as a church is to mobilize missionaries. Um, and so, you know, a couple months back, we were able to do something similar with longtime members that we sent to pastor a new church in the church in Neosho. Um, and in the same way, uh, we're excited. We're excited to send missionaries to mobilize missionaries to Neosho, and we're excited to mobilize missionaries to Japan. And so uh, next Sunday, we'll be celebrating that. So make it a point to be here with us as we hopefully are able to send them off. This morning, Luke's going to be preaching um, from Micah chapter 4, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 5. It shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit, every man, under his own vine, and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken, for all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Lord, thank you uh, for this day that we could come together, and uh, we can uh, have our eyes turned to you. Lord, I ask this morning um, as we kick off this Advent season, uh, Lord, that you will guard our hearts from being distracted um, by lesser things, um, by all that the world seeks to entice us with. And uh, Holy Spirit, might you turn our gaze, um, both our eyes, our heart, to heavenly things. Um, Lord, I thank you for Luke and Jenna. Um, Lord, I ask this morning that um, you might hide Luke behind your cross. And that the truth of who Jesus is may be all that we see. Um, Lord, would you be made much of and glorified uh, through the word that you've given us this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, like Rodney said, my name is Luke, and I'm thankful for a chance to get to share with you this morning. Uh, Micah chapter 4 is where we're going to be, so if you want to open up your Bibles there, go ahead and do that. And uh, that's where we'll be spending most of our time. But I do want to give you a heads up that we're going to be running all over the Bible this morning, uh, looking at different passages to help us understand Micah chapter 4. Uh, so just want to give you a heads up. There will be some passages and things on the screen, if that will help, hopefully, uh, to keep us all locked in. 
Uh, but before I set the stage for Micah chapter 4, I, I also want to pray as we approach the word together. Father, thank you for this morning and for a chance to gather with other Christians. And I want to ask that this morning you will keep my weakness and fear and my own sin and struggle from being a distraction from you. And I ask uh, that you would do your work of making us alive and sanctifying us through your scriptures. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, sometimes things don't go as planned. Can I get an amen from somebody? Uh, maybe as best as we can tell, we have good intentions, and we're trying to do all the right things. We're trying to serve the Lord. We are, you know, coming to church. We're trying to work jobs. We're raising families. We're going to Thanksgiving reunions, sometimes multiple, right? We're trying to read our Bibles. We try to remember which, uh, which week of the month DNA group is, and, and, you know, we go to school, and we try to be gospel-believing people, and then in an instant, in a flash, everything changes, uh, I've told bits and pieces of Jenna's and my story before, uh, but about Christmas time of 2018, Jenna and I decided to join, as Rodney said, an organization called Mustard Seed Network uh, that's working to plant gospel-centered churches in unreached urban Japan. And what we've learned is that sometimes when you say yes to God's call, he requires that you wait for three years and counting before he lets you go. Sometimes things don't go how we thought they would. And that's not just the case for us. I mean, good grief. In the last three years, things have not gone as we thought for any of us. Am I right? I mean, come on. Some of us have, we've moved to new places of residence. Some of us, we've lost family members. Uh, we've, we've found out that the people who were close to us are actually not who we thought they were. Some of us have, have noticed horrible things inside of ourselves. Some of us have weathered sickness. Some of us have weathered trials. Some of us have received phone calls that in an instant rendered us speechless, making us shudder with terror at the news that we just received on the phone. And all of that before we mention anything at all about a presidential election in the last three years or COVID-19. Sometimes things don't go the way we thought they would. And at times, that does have to do with the choices that we make. We're responsible for our sin. But at other times, and maybe even most of the time, when everything around us is going on, we just feel so, so out of control, and we find out that that's actually true, that we are so out of control. Right? If you're like me, you look around, and what we see when we look at the world is darkness, chaos. And we can't help asking, why me? Why her? Why him? Why now? Why? Uh, a few weeks ago, I actually watched a movie with Jenna that I hadn't seen in a long time. Uh, maybe never all the way through, but you know from the picture. Some of you are familiar with this movie. It's called The Castaway. Uh, and don't take this too far. There's some weird stuff in that movie. Uh, but let me just share with those new to the story that the main character, played by Tom Hanks, is on an airplane flight across an ocean for his job with FedEx, the shipping company. And as they fly across the ocean, right, the plane crashes. It goes down. The unthinkable happens in a storm. And Tom Hanks's character uh, becomes stranded on this little inflatable life raft, this little blow-up life raft. And he is, you know, being tossed to and fro through the night, right, in the raging stormy sea, right, and he's hanging on for dear life to this little cord that's connected to the raft, right? There's nothing he can do but wait. 
And sometimes things don't go as planned. <laughs> but if you've seen the movie, you know what happens is he ends up on this island. He washes ashore in the middle of an ocean with a single mountain peak that goes up from the surface and it's surrounded by palm trees and sandy beaches and as he finds out the hard way, painfully sharp rocks. Now, for our purposes this morning, let me just ask the question. Is there any better metaphor for the chaos and the difficulty of this world than a raging stormy sea? And for a helpless person being tossed to and fro by the pounding of the waves in the ocean, could there be a more comforting sight than a mountain drawing near on the horizon? Things often don't go how we thought they would. We find ourselves hurting, confused, tired, weary, struggling. And we often wonder why. This is the state of the world that we live in. And yet the imagery of the waters and the mountain as an illustration of our condition and of our need for help is not something Hollywood dreamed up. No, these images have been given to us by God. Psalm 104, starting in verse 5, describes God's creation of the world like this. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. Imagine that, waters around the mountains. And at your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You see, in the beginning, God created a mountain, bringing it up out of the waters, and he was setting a boundary to keep the waters in their place. The mountain, the dry land, was where God planted the Garden of Eden. This was the safe space. This was the refuge, the realm in which humanity, we, were created in God's image to reign with him over creation. The waters were constrained. They were not a threat as long as humanity trusted God and his instruction. But as most of us well know, that's not how our story goes. We, human beings, were deceived by a serpent whom we were supposed to have ruled over, and we sought for ourselves the position not given us by God, the position of sovereignty, the position of being God, the position of deciding for ourselves what's right and wrong rather than listening to the Lord's guidance. And so we disobeyed God, and because God knew, according to Genesis chapter 3, that it would not be good for humanity to be able to live forever as sinners, we were cut off from our life source, exiled from the garden, and it was off of the mountain and into the stormy waters that humanity went. Or, as it says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. And this is exactly the situation that we find Israel in at the end of Micah chapter 3 in preparation for us to look at chapter 4. We're talking about mountains this morning. We're talking about wilderness. We're talking about chaos and waters. And when we approach the image of the mountain of the Lord at the end of Micah 3 and into Micah 4, we need to keep in mind that this mountain was not just at the beginning of the story and it's not just in Micah 4. It's been a character throughout the story of the Bible to this point. In Genesis chapter 22, it's on a mountain of Moriah, the mountain of the Lord, where Abraham is tested by God and asked to offer up Isaac on the altar as a sacrifice. And it's on the third day, interestingly enough, when Abraham gets to the mountain of the Lord and God provides a substitute offering in the place of Isaac. On the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided, Genesis 22:14. It's in Exodus chapter 3 at Horeb on the mountain of the Lord where Moses hears from God through the burning bush. And it's the same mountain where the law is given to Israel after the Exodus, Mount Sinai. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, it's on the mountain of the Lord, 
Mount Moriah, like Abraham's story, which often becomes referred to as Mount Zion, where the temple was built by Solomon, the son of David. You see, in the story of the Bible, the mountain of the Lord is where God provides. It's where God meets and interacts with and teaches humanity. And it's where God gives us life. But at the end of Micah chapter 3, here's what Israel has just been told. Therefore, because of you, specifically the leaders of the people of Judah, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Sometimes things don't go the way we thought they would. And in this case, because of the sin of Israel's leaders, Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. What had been civilized was going to become wilderness. What had been built would be broken down. And the mountain of the house of the Lord would be covered over by the trees, the wilderness. And if we use the language of Noah and the flood in Genesis, what we find is that the wrath of God was going to cover the mountains with the waters once more. What would Israel do? What would they do? Their mountain was crumbling. And what will we do when the hills we've been standing on begin to crumble as well? You know what we need? You know what we really, really need? <laughs> Human beings, you know, me and you. When we look around and we see the chaos and the water and the wind and the waves of this world, what is it that we desperately, desperately need? When we're trapped in sin, when we're plummeting into the depths of death and we attend funeral after funeral after funeral, and there's nothing we can do about it, what do we need more than anything else? We need a mountain to save us. Because a mountain is our only hope from the waters. And thus says the Lord, Micah chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, the rivers of people flowing up the mountain. Imagine that. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the teaching and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more, but they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been, drift, been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore and you O tower of the flock hill of daughter of Zion to you shall it come the former dominion shall come kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem good news good news God made a promise in the days of Judah even before their exile into Babylon that at a later time the mountain that had been overcome with the wilderness would be established once more as the highest of all mountains. And which mountain is this? 
It's the mountain of the house of the Lord, the mountain where the temple is. It's Mount Zion. This is Jerusalem. Or is it? You know, funny thing about mountains, um, and more specifically mountain ranges, they can be tricky, kind of like biblical prophecy. If you've ever made the mind-numbing drive across my home state of Kansas uh, to go to the Rockies in Colorado, there's this beautiful moment once you get out of Kansas and into the eastern part of Colorado when you can just barely start to make out Pikes Peak on the horizon. Some of you have experienced this. It's a glorious moment after the however many hours, I won't ask if you speed across Kansas, the how many hours right, you just endured to get that far. But when we see the tip of Pikes Peak, we've got a long ways to go. <laughs> uh, and as you get closer, keep on driving, what do we see? Right, we look west, and we start to see what looks like this flat wall of mountains in the distance. But hold on. We're not going to be fooled by that, you and me. We know better. <laughs> right? You and I both know that between those mountains, that it looks stacked on top of each other, there's maybe miles of valley in between them. So we go up one mountain, go down the other side. Go up one mountain, and down the other side. You get the picture. Prophecy in the Bible is kind of like a mountain range. Based on what part of the Bible you are reading in, we can look forward and see the wall of mountain range that goes up to the highest peak, which is talked about at the end of Revelation. The last few pages of the Bible, we'll get there. But the tricky part is that if you look back the other direction, you also see a mountain range. And what you'll find in the Bible is there are mountains and mountain of the Lord moments happening all throughout the story of the Bible, leading us onward toward the end. Now, if we add to that this uh, trickiness of interpretation and various Christian perspectives about what in the world Revelation chapter 20 is about, aka the millennium, what we are left with is about a third of the Bible prophecy uh, that is extremely difficult to nail down with our modern scientific processes and outlines. So, as we talk through Micah chapter 4 further this morning, I recognize within Christianity and within this room, there are various perspectives on Bible passages that deal uh, with prophecy and the latter days or the end times. Uh, for our purposes this morning in Micah, I just want to ask us to pump the brakes on trying to outline too hard. We're, we're going to not road map it. What instead I want us to do is to just listen to the poetry. Listen to the poetry that the Holy Spirit has inspired and let's key into the story that the poetry is telling and let scripture breathe its life into us. Again from verse 1, which I read a few moments ago, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. So God promises to establish his mountain. But what's this promise talking about? Right? In the case of the people of Judah, right, this is good news, that after Jerusalem would be destroyed, it will be rebuilt. Amen. But if we read the stories in Ezra and Nehemiah of Jerusalem being put back together, we find ourselves left wanting. What's up with that? Surely that's not all this is talking about. Because when the Gentile nations allowed Jerusalem to be rebuilt, the people of Judah were in a very real exile still. They were still under the Gentile nations. So what's going on here? What's this about? Well, after Micah was written and Jerusalem was exiled into Babylon, as Micah had said, there's another prophetic book that was written that I think can help us out. In Daniel chapter 2, we get an account of God showing the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar in a dream what would happen in the latter days. And you know what we find as Daniel explains the contents of the dream? We're told of a stone, kind of strange, but it's said that the stone is cut out by no human hand. 
and that this stone is a kingdom that will shatter in pieces the kingdoms of the world. And we're told that this stone kingdom will become a great mountain and fill the whole earth. The prophetic vision in Daniel, then, is a link of prophetic promises through the Old Testament. It links the promise of the mountain in Micah to the promise of the coming kingdom of the son of David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and the son of man in Daniel chapter 7, who will reign forever and ever. And when we finally get in the story to the gospel, what did Jesus say in his first sermon in Mark chapter 1? He said, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's just like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. Which mountain is it in Micah 4 that it says will be established? Well, the mountain of the house of the Lord. It's the temple mountain. And what is Jesus referred to as the temple in John chapter 2, verse 19, when he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It's the temple of his body. Interesting that in Ephesians 1:23 we're told that the church is Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What will that mountain do? In Jesus, the mountain kingdom, the house of the Lord, his own body arrived. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And what did Jesus say? When not the Jews, but the Greeks, the nations, wanted to see him. In John chapter 13, verse 32, Jesus said this, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth. Next verse says, this is talking about the cross, by the way. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Good news. Good news. In Jesus, God established the mountain, the kingdom, and as Christ was lifted up on the cross just outside the city gates of Jerusalem, it was the highest of the mountains of the world overcoming the world, overcoming the darkness of sin and death and violence. By what? By love. And all nations started flowing to him. Surely it's not an accident where Micah 4, 2 says, For out of Zion shall go forth the teaching and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, that the book of Acts begins with Jesus saying to his disciples in chapter 1, verse 8, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, starting where? In Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Oh, how beautiful it is when we start to hear the good news of Jesus Christ in Micah chapter 4. Can you imagine what it would be like if people would repent and believe in Jesus, being given new hearts by the Holy Spirit. Violence, chaos, raging waters, no more. Nations would start farming rather than fighting, as Jesus said to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And as Paul wrote, to leave vengeance to the Lord and to overcome evil with good. It would be like the ultimate promised land. If people would love as Christ had loved us, every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Why those things in Micah 4.4? 4? Well, because figs and the fruit of the vine were the produce of the promised land when Israel first explored it, Numbers chapter 13. Imagine a place like that. Mountain of the Lord. No more waters. Jesus reigns, and there's no one to make the Lord's people afraid anymore. Imagine the sea being contained and ruled over, the chaos calmed like Jesus calming the wind and the waves. And may we not just imagine it, because in this is our living hope, that this stuff is real. That we who repent and believe in the Lord will walk in the name of the Lord forever. That's verse 5. Verses 6 and 7 shouldn't surprise us when they speak of the gathering of the outcasts and the afflicted, the repentant and the weak. For the lame will be a remnant preserved by God's grace and made a strong nation. Let us remember here, Matthew chapter 11. 
where John the Baptist was in prison and sent his disciples to ask Jesus whether he's the one to come or whether they should look for another. And Jesus responded by saying, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus goes on later in the chapter to acknowledge that to the wise and understanding this gospel of the mountain kingdom sounds like foolishness when he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then we hear this beautiful invitation to anyone who has ears to hear. Come to me, says Jesus, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And this isn't temporary. The kingdom of the Lord will be an eternal kingdom, beginning now, leading into forever, as Micah 4, 8 says to Zion, to the people of Jerusalem shall come the former dominion, back like in the days of David, when Israel was united and received just a taste of the glory of the Lord. Kingship shall come, and it did come riding on a donkey. And I stand before you and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is king, he is priest, and because he lived faithfully unto death, even on a cross for our sins, he was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father until his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. As Jesus himself says, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age gospel. We were hopeless and needed a mountain to save us. And God has established his mountain in Jesus Christ our Lord forever and ever. Amen. But if you're like me, maybe you're thinking, hold up. <laughs> Wait a minute. Hang on. What do you mean the mountain of the Lord has been established? Do you not see what's going on all around us? <laughs> Did you not hear about the horrifying thing that took place in the Christmas parade in Wisconsin? You're telling me that Jesus Christ is Lord, and yet this is what's happening under his lordship? What we're experiencing right now, man, seems more like the valley of the shadow of death than the mountain of the Lord. You see, things often don't go the way we thought they would, do they? And yet here we are in the wilderness in the waters, finding out whether or not the faith we claim is real. May we collectively join in the cry of the people of God throughout history. How long, O oh Lord? How long must we wait for every sickness to be healed, every wrong to be made right? How long, O oh Lord, must I wrestle with my thoughts and anxieties and feelings and flesh forever? How long, O oh Lord, must we hurt and struggle and be oppressed like this? After Micah 4 gives us a glimpse of the kingdom, it goes on to say this in verse 9. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Interesting. 
in light of what chapter 3 said about the leaders of Judah. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. Because of their sin, Israel would have to go out from the city into exile in Babylon. Because of our sin, humanity, we have to go out from the mountain into exile in the wilderness. And at this point in the chapter, it kind of seems like we're back to where we started with all of us in need of the mountain of the Lord. But I tell you, and praise the Lord for this, that as we turn the corner in Micah into the Advent season, that the woman's labor pains are not the end of the story. The rest of the verse 10 says this, there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. The salvation of the people of God happens in Babylon. <laughs> Think about what that's saying. Israel's rescue and therefore our rescue, our redemption, being purchased out of slavery and delivered from the power of sin and death, our forgiveness of sins, our washing by the blood, only comes when we're the people of God are in exile. Now let's think about Jesus' life for a minute. Jesus came into the earth and almost immediately was a political refugee in exile in Egypt because Herod was killing the boys under a certain age. Jesus grew up, was baptized, and then what, where did the Holy Spirit lead him? Well, into the wilderness. <laughs> See, wilderness isn't just a punishment. Jesus had never sinned, but he needed to go into the wilderness too. Not to mention, while he was in the wilderness, Satan took Jesus up to where? A high mountain. <laughs> and made him an offer to try to get Jesus off the faithful path of only serving God. Not every mountaintop experience is truth. And Jesus' temptation and struggle did not end there. We can read the accounts of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane asking God, if possible, to take the cup from him. But then he remained faithful, saying, not my will, but yours be done. And we can read the story of the cross where Jesus, innocent, was taken outside the city, exiled on our behalf, where he was tempted to shortcut the suffering by coming down from the cross, saving himself from death, or at least so the bystanders mockingly suggested. It was there, on the cross in Babylon, where Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Hebrews 5 says this, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was, who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Does that sound funny to you? <laughs> Jesus was heard. His prayers were answered. How were they answered? Not by getting him off the cross. He was resurrected. Verse 8 says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You see, if Jesus himself had to go through suffering in order to learn obedience and be made perfect and so be resurrected, how much more will we, sinners, adopted by faith as sons and daughters, need to experience suffering in order to be made new and so be resurrected with Christ? Things don't always make sense to us. They don't always go the way we thought they would. But God knows what he's doing. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is so right now. And yet he knows that there's a good purpose to allow suffering for a time. As Paul says in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
And in verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. What image did Jesus take on this earth? Suffering, temptation, struggle, the cross. That's the image we're formed into now. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, the only path to eternal life is a cross that we receive by faith as we die with Christ in baptism and daily putting to death the misdeeds of the flesh and putting on Christ, his love, his forgiveness, his servanthood, his reverence, his obedience, his faithfulness. And so in dying with him, we rise and live with him. We must follow Christ through the exile before we enter glory on the other side. Brothers and sisters, surely he's with us always to the end of the age, even through the struggle, even through the cross. And you know what happens at the end of the age? Babylon's going down. Every principality and power and ruler on the earth, every person that does not humble him or herself in repentance before the one true king of the earth will be absolutely crushed unto what Revelation says is an unending torment, a second death. Micah 4 speaks of what's to come when it says this. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled and let her eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. For I will make your horn iron and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. You remember in the days of Joshua when God brought about the conquering of the nations in the promised land for Israel? Imagine that globally. Everything on earth devoted to destruction, devoted to the Lord to whom it rightfully belongs. It's like what David said, Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage? and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us note here, may we beware the movements of people who practice violence in the name of freedom. Verse four says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And how will the Lord bring down the nations? Revelation 19:15 says, From his mouth comes a sword with which to strike down the nations. You see, judgment's coming for all people by the word of God, and no one can hide, and all who have rejected the Son will be condemned. But then, on the other side of God's absolute victory, there will be a mountain more secure and steadfast than anything we've ever experienced before. It's an eternal mountain, and Isaiah 25 talks about it like this. 
On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. What is that veil? Verse 8 says, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the, or, all the earth. Praise God for the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. For the Lord has spoken. Verse 9, it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. Listen to this. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. In Revelation chapter 21, I told you we would get there. John writes this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Where is the New Jerusalem? Verse 10 tells us, a great high mountain. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, there's hope. There's hope. There's a mountain on the horizon as we sail across the raging seas of this world. And while things often don't go as we thought they would, and we don't know how far out that mountain is, we don't know when Jesus is coming back, but we know one thing for sure. As surely as Jesus Christ lived, died on the cross, and rose again, as surely as the resurrection, we can take heart that the mountain of the Lord is real being testified to throughout history by the active faith of God's people as we demonstrate our confidence in what is hoped for and assurance of what we can't yet see or feel through the carrying of our cross behind Christ unto glory. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the Advent season. Thank you for the celebration of what happened when the birth pains the daughter of Zion were not the end of the story. And when the dragon tried to consume the baby in Revelation 12, the baby was delivered, was brought up to you. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his blood. We thank you for the cleansing through the gospel. And we thank you for the resurrection by your Holy Spirit and new life. Thank you for the kingdom. Thank you for the mountain. And you is our hope. I pray you'll guide us through this season in faithfulness as you were faithful to us. In Jesus' name, amen.